The text we're looking at is Acts 1, 12 to 26. If you brought a Bible along, um, you can follow along, or you, if you need a Bible, you can grab one from the back uh, right by the door. The text goes, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath, day, Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed that, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Well, welcome back to the study of the book of Acts. We're taking on the book of Acts after Easter, um, not just because traditionally the church has done this for more than a thousand years, um, but also because it is particularly poignant for us as a church post-Easter to study what the church did post-Easter. Right? This is a post-resurrection church. They know that Jesus has risen from the dead. What does life look like for this early Christian church? And as we meditate on that, we learn something about what it means to be a post-resurrection church nearly 2,000 years later. Last week, we kicked off the series with the study of the ascension of Jesus, which is, in a sense, the tone setter for the entire book of Acts. It gives us a trajectory for what Acts is trying to communicate to us. And if you were with us last week, you remember that uh, the message we got was that Jesus is on his mission and we are simply joining him on that mission. It's so easy for us to think the church's mission is all about us and what we do, but truthfully, biblically, it is Jesus' mission and we participate in that mission. And one other thing I want to review before we get into the text for today, and that is the, the difference between descriptive and prescriptive texts. You remember we, we spent some time on this last week. We said prescriptive texts are these texts of the Bible that tell us what we are to believe, to do, to think, to say, etc. And I think most people uh, believe that that's actually what the entire Bible is, <laughs> that it's essentially a divine to-do, how-to manual with to-do lists of how to be a better Christian. And while certainly there are parts of the Bible that are prescriptive, actually large sections of it are descriptive. Descriptive meaning it just tells you what happened. There's no value judgment in it. The text doesn't say this was good or this was bad necessarily. It just says this is what happened. 
Um, just to give you a couple examples of this, uh, our Tuesday night Bible study uh, was studying the book of Esther. Esther is a descriptive book. If you read through the book of Esther, you realize that Esther is a very messy character. She makes some good decisions, she makes some poor decisions, and yet the, the text doesn't tell us whether those things are good or bad. We can learn that from other portions of Scripture. What Esther is simply doing is laying out the story and saying, here's what happened, and the conclusion we come to is Jesus works through messy people. Our, Sunday night, our Tuesday Bible study, which is also actually starting to meet on Sunday afternoons, so if you've got nothing to do this afternoon before your Mother's Day meal, you can come and join us for a Bible study uh, on the life of David. David is another interesting character um, because the, the text of First and Second Samuel will just lay out what did David do, and in some cases, it's really bad. Right? David stole a man's wife. He's a murderer. He's got a harem of women. It doesn't necessarily say those things are outright bad in the text. It just describes them. And we get that mostly in Acts. Acts is mostly descriptive. We have to understand that if we're going to read Acts properly. It's actually going to be in full view right here as we read the text that's in front of us. This is descriptive. And I think we have to understand that because if we don't, we start assuming that things are true when they're not necessarily true. Now, this text, I've got to be honest with you, is one that I, I have struggled with this week as I've been studying it, and I think I am still struggling with it. Uh, because as you read this text, you really can come to one of two conclusions about what's happening because it is a descriptive text. Um, you can really understand it as either the disciples doing something that's good, something that is right, or you can understand it as the disciples doing something that is wrong. And I'll walk through those two with you, but I want you to understand that I am struggling with this. And maybe to back up a little bit, let me help you with uh, why. My call from God is to be his voice to this congregation. When I stand up here and open my mouth, I am speaking for God. And you ought to hear it that way. Like God is not going to show up here, manifest himself in front of us. He's going to speak through the holy ministry which he has set up. Now, you might think to yourself, well, hold on. You're still a fallible human being, though, and trust me, I know. So there are a couple things that you should know. First of all, you have the scriptures. And if I'm not speaking in line with the scriptures, then you've got to call me out for it. But secondly, I think you should also know that I'm going to be held accountable for what I say up here. So this is right out of the book of Hebrews. When, when you get to heaven, all y'all, God's going to say, welcome, glad you're here. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be asked to make an account for how I spoke to you. I'm going to be asked, did you speak God's words truly to your people? And so there's a huge responsibility on me to stand up here and actually say what God says. This is not just my ideas, my opinions. I have to be sure that what I am saying is in line with God's word or else I'm going to be held accountable for it. So here's the problem. I'm not totally sure what God is saying here. And I have to be honest with you about that. I really think as you read this text, you can come very logically and reasonably to two different conclusions about what is happening. Either the disciples are doing something that's good or the disciples are doing something that is wrong. Now, the good news of all of this is that regardless of how you read this text, you end up kind of coming to the same conclusion. So at the end of this, I'm going to tie a bow on this and help you see how really both readings lead you to the same place. But I also want to be clear with you that I'm not totally sure which one of these is right. 
Now, I'm going to walk through both of them. We're going to walk through them and see how someone might come to the conclusion that the disciples are doing right or the disciples are doing wrong. And we're going to walk through some of the implications of each of those readings. And at the end of it, you're probably going to have a preference. (laughs) You're probably going to think one of these is right or wrong. And so do I. I have a preference. But I'm not going to tell you what it is because it doesn't matter. And I can't say for sure that that's what God is saying to you today. So at the end of this, what you will get is the main point, which I know God says to us but we're going to take two kind of circuitous routes to get there. All right? Before we break down those two ways of reading the text, let's just talk about what happens in the text. Um, the disciples are meeting together. It says they are in an upper room. Most of the commentators I read on this says, say that this is probably the same upper room where the disciples met with Jesus on the night that he was betrayed when he instituted the Lord's Supper. We don't know that for sure, but more than likely. Um, It says that there's a large group of them, 120, which includes not just the 11 disciples, but also other disciples and many women who were also there. They were constantly engaging in prayer, waiting for the Lord Jesus. And then we get this list of the disciples. And I think Luke is really intentional for us when he lists the disciples. In fact, when he lists anybody, maybe you remember back to the Easter sermon where we talked about how he lists uh, people like Joanna and Mary Magdalene, etc., He lists the disciples here, and every time that that I see this list, I am struck by the diversity of that list. Think about the fact that those men would not have gathered together and stayed together for any reason other than they believed in Jesus as their Savior. You have a group of people who are fishermen in some cases. You have rich people. You have poor people. You have zealots who are essentially like your alt-right radicals. You have tax collectors who are essentially your leftist sellouts. I mean, these are people who would not normally get along in any other context except they believed in Jesus. And I think that's really important for us to zoom in front on for just a second because this is a small congregation. And as you look around this room, you probably know everyone in it, and you probably have some sort of relationship with just about everyone in this room. And I know for some of you, that's not always a positive thing, right? You got baggage, you got personal beef, you got differing personalities or differing values. And in a small church, you can't hide. You see each other every Sunday. I want you to know that Jesus has called us together in this small congregation in the same way that he called his disciples. People who would probably not necessarily get along in any other context, but we believe in something higher. And so as you think about the other people in this room, maybe the people you don't always get along with, remember that. We're not here because we believe all the same things about politics or social issues or sports teams or anything besides Jesus rose from the dead. And let me tell you two reasons why this is really valuable. They're actually biblical, but I just heard a psychologist talk about it, so it made it maybe more real for me in a sense. Conflict in a group is actually a really positive thing. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, there has to be disagreements among you in order to find out who is approved. He says, you have to be disagreeing about things because it's the only way to come to a consensus about what is true. If you're not disagreeing, if you're just coming in here and you're just consuming and you're never checking it with somebody else, how do you know you're believing what's true? You're just letting your mind decide what's true. Not letting the community that God says he indwells tell you what's truth, according to the scriptures. Another part of this, though, is that conflict is only healthy when there's a pre-existing relationship there. So this psychologist that I was listening to talked about, um, like, hostage negotiations. So negotiators who come into hostage situations, they don't come in and they say, all right, what's it going to take for me to get those hostages out of the house or wherever they are? 
They first build a relationship with the person they're negotiating with. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I know this is a tense situation. You don't have to do anything. I just want to talk. Once they build that relationship, it actually makes it possible for them to negotiate with this hostile person. So, like we see here, you have the ability to disagree with people in this room because you have that pre-existing relationship that says we were baptized into the same Lord Jesus, we partake of the same Lord's Supper which unites us to him. We have something higher than whether we agree about anything going on in the world. Okay, thanks for letting me take that tangent. After we get this list of the disciples, uh, Peter stands up amongst the group and he says, it's necessary for us to replace Judas. And then we get sort of this aside where uh, Luke kind of ties up the loose end of what happened with Judas. He doesn't mention it in his gospel, so he's doing it for Theophilus, the reader of Acts right here. And he tells them essentially that Judas kills himself. Um, the text of the Greek in this like, account of, of Judas's death is really difficult. And um, the only reason I say that is because some people criticize this and say, well, this contradicts what happens to Judas in other texts. I would say it's a lot more complicated than, than you maybe would like to believe. But the essential thing that Luke is just getting across here is Judas killed himself, okay? He can't take the position again. Now, Peter comes back to this point. He says, we need to replace Judas amongst the apostles. And he quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 to be his proof passages for that. I mean, those texts, it says that there's going to be one who's going to replace a person who has given up his position of leadership. So... The disciples get together, they whittle down the list of nominations to two guys, Joseph and Matthias. They pray earnestly over these men, God, show us who is the one you've chosen to replace uh, Judas in this ministry, and then they cast lots. Casting lots would be something like throwing dice for us. And the lot falls on Matthias, and Matthias is added to the 12. So what happens in the text is actually pretty easy to understand. Like I said, the difficulty comes when we ask this question, were the disciples doing something that was right or were they doing something that was wrong? Were they supposed to replace the apostle, or were they not supposed to replace him? Now, how might someone come to the conclusion that the disciples did right? Let's start there. Probably the easiest place to look is Peter's use of the scripture. So Peter goes back to Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and he proves it from Scripture. This is supposed to happen. And if you look back in the Old Testament at those passages, it doesn't seem that he is ripping them out of context or twisting them or misinterpreting them in any way. It seems very clear that, that is what those texts are prophesying. And so this leads many people to believe that well, the disciples are just fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by replacing an apostle. You can also see in the disciples a really earnest desire to participate in the ministry. Jesus has just said this, you guys are going to be my witnesses, and they're thinking to themselves, well, we need more witnesses. So let's get another guy to be an apostle with us. You also see something really cool, and we'll unpack this a little bit later, but this idea of Christian decision-making. The way they go about deciding who is going to be the next apostle is actually really wise. Um, now, somebody might say, well, wait a second, what if what they did is wrong? Does that make their decision-making unwise? And I'd say, no, the problem is not how they make the decision, it's that they make the decision, if you're understanding the text that way. So their Christian decision-making here is actually really wise, and we can learn something from that as well. And then finally, as we look at this text, and we look at the commentators who have studied this text, the majority of them are going to come to the conclusion that the disciples did something right here. Now, understand, we don't do our theology by majority opinion. Understand that the majority of people who read the Bible don't believe that it's God's word. 
And even the majority of Lutherans in this country don't believe that the Bible is God's word. So we're not going to go by majority always in our opinions of the scriptures, but the majority of people think the disciples are doing something good here. So what are the implications? If we understand what the disciples are doing is right, what do we learn? The first thing we learn is the importance of prayer. We see right at the beginning of the text, this is a group that has gathered together constantly in prayer. And then when they nominate Matthias and Joseph, they pray, God, show us who is the one you have chosen. I think it's a struggle for, well, certainly for me, but I think in general for Christians um, to make prayer as much of a priority as the scripture makes it. How many of us truly believe that the best thing we can do for whatever our problem is, is pray about it? If you're like me, the first thing you think of is, what do I got to do about it? But God would have us say, the first thing to do is to pray about it. That's what the disciples do. That's, that's what we're called to do. Ultimately, nothing happens without God's say-so. So why not go to him and ask him to work through whatever is our problem? If it's job or finances or future or, or political issues or social issues or family or relationships or health, whatever it is that you're thinking about that is the biggest thing that's bothering you right now, is the first thing you do about it, pray about it. That's what Jesus would have us do. We also learn a love for the scripture. The disciples see Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 as binding on their life. They say, it's written, therefore we're going to do it. And again, I think in the West, particularly, where we are sold to so many things, we have been trained to evaluate everything we see. We're naturally cynical. We're naturally skeptical about everything. What is trying to be subtly communicated to me by whatever is being said. And I get that. I live in the same culture as you do. But when it comes to God's word, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, then when Jesus speaks, when God speaks through the scriptures, we believe it. That's it. We believe that when Jesus says something, we're going to do it. When Jesus says something, we're going to believe it. And I want to press that on us a little bit. Is that how we feel? I mean, like I said, my, my call is to speak for God. It's not about me, it's about God. When I speak accurately from the scriptures, do we take that as, that's the end of it? Or do we ask ourselves, does that work for me? Is that convenient? These disciples loved the scripture. They saw it all as binding. And by the way, they were studying it. Right? Peter pulls these texts out of the Psalms. To be honest with you, if I was in Peter's scenario, I would not have known these verses. <laughs> I don't pray the Psalms enough. I should, but I don't. Peter did, and the group loved those scriptures. Um, Finally, we have this uh, point of Christian decision-making. And I really want to zoom in on this one because I think there's a number of things we can learn here. I think there's a very narrow application of this that we should talk about, and then probably a broader one. The narrow one is how a pastor is called to a congregation. Uh, Because the, the method that we have for calling pastors into congregations is, a lot, is mo, uh, mostly derived from this text. Now, we have other texts, of course, that talk about the call of the pastor, but this one's really good for illustrating how that might work. So how does a congregation get a pastor? Um, if a congregation is in need of a pastor, which every congregation needs a pastor, that's what, that's what the scriptures say, um, we will go to a group of people, they're called our district presidents. There's 12 of them over the 12 districts of our church body. Those 12 district presidents who know collectively all the pastors in our church body 
will come together and make a short list of people who they believe will be good pastors for our congregation. That short list is then given to our specific district president who shortens that list even more and then gives it to a congregation and says, here are some people who you might want to call. Now, some of you have been in these call meetings because it wasn't that long ago that Cross of Life was looking for a pastor. And you maybe remember that those little bios that they give you of the pastors on the short list are very brief. That's on purpose. Because it can be so easy for a congregation to start to think we want a pastor created in our own image. You know this uh, show, The Stepford Wives? You know the show? If you, never know, if you don't know the show, uh, the idea is that there are these men who have created these essentially perfect wives who are totally obedient to everything that they say. They are, look immaculate all the time. And the point of the story is to say this is not love, right? If you have a spouse who is robotically doing whatever you say, that's not a relationship. But it is a temptation of congregations to want a Stepford pastor, to want a pastor who says what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And so the, the point of giving these very brief bios is to keep a congregation from saying, let's get a pastor who fits us. Because frankly, God doesn't want to give you a pastor who fits you. He wants to give you a pastor who calls you to repentance because that's the point. And so, since you cannot know everything about these pastors as you pick which one you're going to call, you call one and in a sense, leave it up to God to work out which of those men would be the best pastor for your congregation. Anyways, you get the short list, you pick one, you call him, and then if he is a man who has no call to any congregation, he takes the call. He has no decision in the matter because God said so. Um, that was a situation for me when I got called here. I had no previous call to my call being here. You called me by the power of the Holy Spirit. I consider that God speaking through you to me. Since God said it, I'm going to do it. So I took the call. But if you have a situation where you call a man who already has an existing call, then you have a little bit of a different scenario. So in a couple of months, I'm going to be eligible to start receiving calls. Um, I may or may not. But if I eventually get a call, I will then have a call from another congregation, which is God speaking to me saying, go serve that congregation. And I will have the existing call from God to serve Cross of Life. And then I will have to decide. Now, the way I go about deciding this is, well, not like you would think, probably, if you think about any other people who switch job positions. First of all, it does not matter where I go. Um, there's a joke among pastors from Canada. It seems like we always get calls to places like Florida or Texas or Arizona because they think we hate the cold. Um, that just doesn't matter to me, okay? I hate living on earth anyways. I don't care where I live. I just want to go to heaven. And as long as God keeps me alive, I'm just going to keep talking to whoever shows up. I also don't care about how much money I make. Um, I might get paid more or might get paid less in different calls. It just doesn't matter. I believe that God's people are going to provide for me because that's what scripture says. Um, and I, I frankly, as much as I know there are those of you who really do love me and my family, I frankly don't care about your emotions in making that decision either. Um, I love that you love us. And if you hate us, I realize that's probably a reality, but that just doesn't matter for whether I take a call or not. What matters is do my tendencies and my skills bless our congregation or hinder our congregation in, and in what ways? And would that be different in a different position? So when we get to that place, wherever we, whenever we get there, where I have a call to another congregation, I'm going to ask for your feedback. What I'm going to want to hear is not, we love you. I'm going to want to hear, this is what you're good at. 
and this is what serves us. Or this is what you're not good at, and this is where we're, we're faltering. That's good Christian decision-making. We see this right in the text, by the way. There are four steps to Christian decision-making. Um, those four steps, if you want to take them in your notes, the first is to study Scripture. Right? We study Scripture and we say, what does Scripture say? This is what the apostles did. They looked at Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and said, we need to have a 12th apostle. You do the same thing. Specifically, when you call a pastor, you look at Scripture, and Scripture says, a congregation needs a man to be a pastor, therefore we're going to pursue getting a pastor. The second of those is that you use human wisdom. Now, I think immediately we start to think, well, I'm going to use my own wisdom, which is not what the Scripture actually is saying. Remember, this is a group of people coming together to use their collective wisdom. So they come together, like the district presidents do. They whittle the list down to these two men, Matthias and Joseph. Then they pray earnestly, right? They bring it to God. And they don't just bring it to him once. They've been praying constantly about this. And then finally, they leave it up to God. In their case, they cast lots. In our case, we have brief bios about pastors. But they ultimately left the result up to God. Now, you can take this and make a broader application, and I think we should, because the fact of the matter is we're not going to be calling a new pastor anytime soon, I hope. But everyone is making Christian decisions all the time. Especially if you're a young person, although I say old, older folks also struggle with decision-making. Um, we have big decisions that are in front of us, and, and frankly, little decisions that deserve Christian decision-making. If you're a young person, you're thinking about things like, where am I going to live? What am I going to do? Who am I going to marry? How many kids am I going to have? Et cetera, et cetera. As you get older, some of those decisions get sort of set in stone, but we're all making decisions. So how do we apply God's word to making Christian decisions? Well, first, we study scripture. We go back to scripture and say, what does scripture say? And not just like, oh, I have one passage. I look at what everything in scripture has to say about this. Because it is so easy to give myself one passage of scripture, rip it out of context, and let it justify whatever I actually want to do in the first place, regardless of what God actually says. So as you think about what decisions you're making, big or small, ask yourself, have I consulted the entire scripture on this? Now, if that sounds intimidating, that's why you have a pastor. It's my job to know the entire scripture so that I can help you see what the entire scripture has to say about whatever decision you're making. And I have time for that. Call me, text me, email me, whatever you need to do so that we can talk about a decision that you're struggling with so I can show you what scripture says. After that, you use human wisdom. And we like to think it's our own human wisdom, but it's not. It's collective human wisdom, right? It's going to other Christians and asking, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what scripture says. Talk this through with me. Because God says we are a body and every body needs all of the different parts of that body. How can the hand say to the foot, I don't need you? How can the eye say to the ear, I don't need you? They need each other. We need each other. As we make Christian decisions, if we're making them in our own headspace, we are failing. And third, we pray earnestly. And not just once, but again and again, day after day. Let that word of God that we've been studying when we went through the scripture percolate in our minds. Let the conversations continue to flow until ultimately we just make a decision. And I think particularly, again, for young people, this is a little bit difficult because we've been trained by social media to think that there are good decisions and bad decisions, right decisions and wrong decisions. Like you're either on the right side of history or on the wrong side of history. There's no nuance in there. That's not how God talks. That's not how God thinks. We tend to think in terms of right or wrong, good or bad, but really the scripture thinks in terms of probably things like wise or foolish. We like to believe that 
that I can make the perfect decision where everyone's going to be happy and everything's going to be successful is just not possible. And by the way, I don't think the church has really helped with this. Um, If I had a nickel for every time someone came to me and asked, is this specific behavior a sin? I would have lots of nickels. But what I always want to say to that person is, wrong question. Right? We want to believe there are a list of sins, things that we just don't do, and if we avoid these behaviors, somehow we're good. Sin is far more nuanced. It is far more complex. It is far more pervasive in our lives to think that by simply stopping a certain set of behaviors, we're going to be good. Every decision is tainted by sin. And frankly, every sin is forgiven by Jesus. So ultimately, you're not actually changing your standing with God. You are fully forgiven in your baptism and fed, that fed, fed the body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. So it's not about being good or bad. It's about being wise or foolish. And so you go back to Scripture, consult human wisdom, you pray earnestly, and then you ultimately make a decision. And some decisions are better than others. Some are wise. Some are foolish. But we ought to think about this. Because so quickly we go to whatever we want, whatever feels good, whatever is easy, rather than what is wise. I could press more on this, but for the sake of time, I won't, because we have to look at another way of reading this text. And that's that the disciples maybe did something wrong. How would you come to the conclusion the disciples did something wrong here? Um, Let me give you a a number of pieces of evidence. First of all, um, Jesus tells the disciples in the text that we read last Sunday and also in in the book of Luke to wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. In essence, he's saying, don't do anything. And then the disciples do something without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples at Pentecost. At that point, we can trust that everything they speak is of God. It is God's word. But the Holy Spirit has not come yet at this point. Second, when Luke starts the book of Acts, we read this last Sunday, I believe it's in verse 2 of chapter 1, he describes the 11 apostles as those whom Jesus had chosen. It's an exact quote, those whom Jesus had chosen. Jesus did not explicitly choose Matthias, but he does later explicitly choose Paul. Right? He shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus and chooses Paul. So this leads some people to believe Matthias was not actually chosen by Jesus. He was just chosen by the 11 guys who were there. You also see in the rest of the Bible that the number 12 is very significant. You have 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus calls 12 disciples in the first place. But if we come to the conclusion that Matthias is an apostle and Paul is very obviously an apostle, then we have 13 apostles, which doesn't fit with the number 12. Again, which leads some people to believe maybe this wasn't a legitimate call. We also have the fact that Matthias is never mentioned anywhere else in the scripture. It's only here. We never see him in any of the adventures of the Acts of the Apostles, which again leads people to believe this was not something that was correct. Matthias is not actually legitimately an apostle. We also have that Paul's, excuse me, Peter's qualifications for an apostle, namely he says he has to have been with us from the beginning of Jesus' ministry until he ascended into heaven. Those qualifications don't apply to the apostle Paul who we know is an apostle. He was not with them through all of Jesus' life. In fact, he was against them. He was a Pharisee. And then finally, we realize that Matthias was called particularly because he was good, right? They whittled this list down to really good candidates to be an apostle. But think about how Jesus calls his apostles. He calls messed up dudes, right? Alt-right radicals, leftist sellouts, fishermen, and eventually a Pharisee in Paul. Jesus calls the worst people to show the surpassing greatness of his grace in their lives. The disciples chose somebody who was good for the job, 
Now, you may not agree, but that's some evidence and how someone might come to the conclusion that the disciples didn't do the right thing here. So, what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that the church is full of sin and messiness, but Jesus still uses it. Right? Like the disciples have this amazing call, this amazing moment. Jesus has ascended into heaven. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they're ready to go out the door. And the first step they take, they fall flat on their face. That's the church. Welcome. We're full of messy people who don't get it right. Who hear what God says and then walk the other direction. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus continues to save us and work through us. If you're hoping that this church is going to be a well-oiled machine that always does everything wisely and rightly, you are in the wrong religion. But if you believe that we are here because we are messed up and Jesus saves messed up people because messed up people is all that there is, then you're in the right place. So let's draw these two conclusions together. What, What do we see in both of these texts that can lead us to a conclusion that fits both of them and I think is truly what God is saying to us here, regardless of how we read it? We tend to think in our lives and in ministry, one of two ways. We either think that if we do everything right, then we will be successful. If we make all the right decisions, if we follow all the right people, if we believe all the right things, if we say all the right words, then we will be successful. That is wrong. Jesus does not save, Jesus does not bless because of our works. We are saved apart from our works. The Bible says, by nature, all of our works are filthy rags. Now, that leads some people to fall into the opposite ditch, which is to believe that we can just sit back and let God do everything. Let go and let God, right? But that's also wrong. Jesus called us into this ministry. He didn't say, I'm going to go do some stuff and you guys go sit on sidelines. He said, you will be my witnesses of the things that I continue to do. You will participate in this ministry and I will give you wisdom. I will give you the Holy Spirit and you will be witnesses to the end of the earth. It's so easy for us to fall into one of these ditches though, right? We get everything in a row, everything right, and everything will work out. Or we, in a sense, detach ourselves and say, God will take care of it, it's not my problem. Both of those are wrong. What both of these understandings of the text bring us to is this idea. The church moves forward to the best of its ability with the comfort that Jesus will get his work done. Right? Think about these two ways of understanding the text. Either the disciples were doing something really good and they chose Matthias to be an apostle and God said, that was great, I'm doing something different. You'll never hear about Matthias again, but I'm going to call Paul into my ministry and he's going to be the greatest apostle who ever lived. Or, the disciples fell flat on their face, made a decision that was contrary to God's will and God said, that's okay, I'll take care of it. I'm going to choose Paul to be my apostle. In both scenarios, right or wrong, Jesus gets his work done. And so can I just speak pastorally to Cross of Life for a minute? I know, because I talk to you, that some of you are discouraged. You're discouraged because you've tried to invite your friends or your relatives or your neighbors to come to church with you, to study the Bible with you, and you feel like you've exhausted all those opportunities and you're not sure who you can reach out to in your life. And some of you are discouraged because on Easter Sunday, this beautiful breakfast, beautiful service, and we did not get one new visitor in worship with us. And maybe you think back four years, five years or so, and you remember that when Pastor Joel was here, Cross of Life was about 150 members and about 75 in worship, and now we're half that. A little bit less than 100, 
about 35 in worship, and you can get discouraged. I know I do. There may be nothing more that has plagued my life for the last four years than those thoughts. But Satan comes and tries to convince me, you ruined it. It was going well, and then you came in, and then it all went to pot. Maybe you're feeling that. I'm feeling it. And so maybe I'm preaching this text more to myself than I am to you today. I don't know. We might think that if we just did all the right things, if we just did all the right programs, if we just advertised the right way, then everything would work out. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. We're going to study scripture deeply. We're going to read it. We're going to apply it to our lives. We're going to collectively use human wisdom. We're going to pray like there's no tomorrow. And then we're going to try stuff. Well, let's all walk away with the comfort that whether we are 30 or we are 300, Jesus still loves this church. Do you know how much Jesus loved Cross of Life when it was 150 members and 75 in worship? Enough to die for it. Do you know how much he loves Cross of Life with a little less than 100 members and 35 in worship? Enough to die for it. And so let's love what we are right now. It's so easy to think what we were, what we could be, but this is what we are. We are not 11. We are, well, 35 in worship and a little less than 100 on the books. We're called here together, not because we all get along, because we all agree on everything, but because we believe something higher than that. Jesus has risen from the dead. And to the extent to which we can love each other and create a community that's built on that, whether we grow or don't, I don't know, that's up to Jesus. But I would, be, I would love to be part of that community. So, let's strap up. Let's try hard. But then let's believe that Jesus has got it. And let's pray. God, you've called us into this ministry together to share wisdom, to share scripture, to pray together, and to love whatever comes out the other side. And Jesus, I know that there are people who are discouraged in this room. I'm one of them. A lot of the time, Satan wants me to believe that I'm a failure, but it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about you and what you've done for us. So bless us with that by your Holy Spirit. Give it to us in your sacraments, and keep calling us back here to hear about it again. Amen.